0: Welcome to the podcast, and today we had the pleasure of inviting Andrew Turner onto the show, who's currently the Vice President of Sales for Arcos Golf. If you don't know them, check them out. They're a really interesting case study of a successful startup in golf over the past five years. And this episode, for me, was a little bit like going back to school. I learned a lot in this conversation, and whilst I love doing these podcast chats with all of our guests, and I'm always learning something new. The obvious learning for me really in this episode was about rational decision-making and it was also a bit like a mentoring session, which I'm super grateful for. So Adam, Adam's with me today. You know Andrew for quite some time and you've spoken very highly of him, but he's also someone a number of the Gather community have asked for as a guest and he's also someone they would love to have a mentoring session with. What do you think these community listeners should be listening out for in this chat?
1: I think with Andrew, it's... Listening to him, you're able to live quite vicariously um, because he's been on a lot of the journeys. He's faced a lot of the questions um, and he articulates himself very clearly. I think coming to your point of the learning, it's it's the mentality. It's the way of thinking and a way of approaching uh, both the big and the small decisions that you might face in your career about starting a business. Um, But there's some real interesting points he made because he's someone that's coming... From a slightly different perspective he came to golf generally late uh, later in life but also f- from a business uh, perspective so just hearing his approach is really refreshing yeah fantastic well enjoy the chat
0: hello everybody andrew welcome to the show it's great to have you on and we really appreciate you taking the time to do that with us today uh, Andrew, uh, for almost four years now, you've been working with Arcos, and prior to that, as a PGA professional in the UK, having been assistant professional to courses in the US. One of those I was reading includes the Tom the Tom Reversible Course called mm-hmm. Loop, uh, which it sounds pretty cool. I've seen the images of that, and um, the interesting part is that your background prior to golf was uh, starting out in. in from university going into JP Morgan and then founding and developing a real estate private equity development fund. So having lived in both the US and the UK, we'd love to just kick off by asking our favourite first question to our guests. And that is, what would you like to change about the golf industry, but you can't?
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the loaded question, right? The one that everybody kind of, it's the million it's the million dollar question really, isn't it? I was thinking about this this morning. I'd say there's, there's probably two, if that's all right. Yeah, rather than just the one. I was... Um, The first one, I read back to my um, dissertation this morning as well that I wrote back at university. So I was looking at all those nomadic golfers that are traveling around playing in the UK. You know, they make up 73% of the UK golfers and we don't track them. We have no insights in them. We've got no email addresses. So I think the exclusion of those golfers from the ability of England golf to track them and provide them with a handicap, I think it just excludes people from the game. You know, I speak to loads of people who I play with and they're not members of clubs, but they want to have some sort of handicap because it kind of makes you feel as though you belong to a community. Um, so I think if we can solve that, that would be one. I mean, I know England golf are gonna have a headache about all of that just because of all the subs and the revenue they get from the clubs and then it'll inevitably piss the golf clubs off. But hey, if you don't change things, you're never gonna get anywhere, are you? So I think, I think that's one that has bugged me for a while. You know, how you include people. You know, if I look at where we are as a business, you know, getting an email address of a customer and engaging with them, that generates revenue, right? And we're all in the business of generating revenue. And if you don't attract those golfers, if you don't get them on board, if you don't get regular contact with them, they're just out there in the mire somewhere and you can't you can't engage with them. So I think that's that's probably my biggest bugbear. there. How do you engage the golfers who aren't members of golf clubs? Mm-hmm.
0: Um, well, it's interesting on that one, actually, and you've got a second point, but my first... Um... Reaction, and this is not the first time that someone has had this discussion point on this podcast, actually. Uh, you might know about my background was working with one of the home union's governing bodies, so with Scottish Golf, and then I spent a bit of time with the RNA. And in both instances, there was an increasing feeling over the last sort of 10, 12 years of it, moving from this whole there's a there's a load of people out there and we're going to call them nomads, which I was never really comfortable with. Again, they're golfers, they're people who love the game in some way, so it doesn't matter whether they're a club member or not. And really those organisations slowly, very slowly trying to move away from that thinking and saying anyone who digests golf in some form is a golfer and we need to think about them. Um, and it's it's been a huge missed opportunity. But I think you know, Adam and I and other guests have talked a lot about the structures within golf, which sort of limit the pace of change. And I kind of do believe genuinely that that's one of the That should have changed faster with the governing bodies like you've described with England golf and Scotland, Ireland and so on. But it's just not because of the structures that they operate within. Um, But the longer that goes on, the more they're missing out on because the the golfer market in the UK that's not a member of a club is probably bigger than the ones that are. I am one of those, even though I'm not based in the UK at the moment. For a number of years, I've not been a member of a club. And I'm sitting there thinking, surely I am the low-hanging fruit. And I've had guests on this podcast who work in golf, promote the game, love it. And are not members of clubs, and they've actually said on the podcast, we wouldn't join a club right now because it's just there's just nothing that really ticks the boxes for us. So for me, there's like huge warning signs there. But great first point, thanks.
2: I'd I'd argue with you actually on that last point. I wouldn't say it's a warning sign. I don't see why people need to join a golf club. I mean, if golf clubs operate as businesses, and this you know I'm a big capitalist, right? So I think if if you know golf businesses operate to attract an end user or somebody you know it's a lifestyle business right they're trying to attract people with these hobbies then you know to me it's not a warning sign it's maybe just the golf clubs need to have a think about okay are they happy with their membership are they happy with what they're offering you know take Silvermere for example or you know public golf course attracts people down in down in Surrey, but then you've got other golf courses that are more private and attract people and i guess that's kind of where my second point is it's this You know, this woke generation that's really annoying to me at the moment, that is all about things have got to be perfect. You know, it's got to be, you know, we've got to be this all-inclusive society. We can't look back on our history. We can't be proud of what we've done previously. Um, And I just worry that, you know, the powers that be are kind of becoming this too rigid mentality. And, yeah, I'm all for getting juniors into golf and more ladies and all the rest of it. But at the same time, why can't we just have, you know, take Muirfield, fantastic old club gentlemen members yes they've admitted ladies but you know where is everybody's right to say you know this should be a junior only club or this should be a ladies only club or a men only club i mean that's that's our right in democracy so i think that is that's somewhere where we just got to figure it out and if you create that correct correct environment then you're going to attract these nomadic golfers you know maybe you want to go to a family club right so if there's a proper businessman in that area purchases a golf club turns it into a family environment they're going to attract you you know, but maybe Adam wants, you know, he's fed up with his family by the looks of it having to sit in a car during this podcast. So, you know, maybe he wants to be, you know, the single golfer and go to a men's only club where he can just hang out and drink beers with the boys. So I think as businesses and society, we've just got to wake up and not be so rigid and not be so um, cautious about pissing people off. I think we just got to try and find what is the right marketplace for each, each individual golfer.
1: I think it's something that the golf industry completely undersells. Um, it's very vibrant. It's very diverse how you can consume golf. Um, I think it's something that if golf just focused on the variety of, of ways that you can play and interact with golf, um, I think they'd really realize because when it comes down to it, as a consumer, you want choice. And golf's menu is large. It's so expansive at the moment and it's larger than it's ever been. Um, so I think, yeah, we. We should definitely look to try and celebrate that and just make sure that message really bangs home because how many times have we taken friends to top golf or different environments, even just golf clubs that are are much more family-orientated and people go, oh, wow, I didn't know golf was like this. And obviously working in the industry, being a golfer, you go, this is painful because it's been like this for a while, but we just don't set our stall up very well. So, yeah, no, it's, it's it's a really interesting point. And I think there is, yeah, I agree. There probably is a danger of, this sort of woke mentality just um, taking away from the diversity and vibrancy of, of what's on offer in golf.
2: Yeah, I think there's just seen so many people just pushing in one direction. You know, there's lots of campaigns to get ladies into golf, women, um, juniors into golf, and I'm all for that. I think it's just got to be in the right environment because if you bring them into the wrong environment, they're going to be turned off immediately. So take a look at what Alistair Spink does, right, with Love.Golf and the ladies that he's, he's doing. That's great because he's bringing them into the environment that they want to be in you know, junior golfers, you know, all our AGMS colleagues and things, there's loads of junior golf coaches out there who are creating the right environment for them. But trying to take a golf club, such as, uh, let's take Wentworth, for instance, and setting up a junior golf academy is probably not going to be the right environment for juniors to go and have fun. So I think it's all about matching the environment to the consumer. And that's where, as far as I'm concerned, democracy and capitalism will come in and people will you know, decide with their wallets, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And having had experience again of working in a team where we were basically tasked with getting as many clubs as possible in our region of Scotland to take on a junior coaching programme, it was only a few years. It only took us a few years to suddenly realise, hold on a minute, not every club should be all things to all people. They've got to work out what they stand for as a business, what kind of business they want to be, who those consumers then are, and then focus on them and be as best as they can for that. And I think people are starting to catch on to that. On On the point of WOKE, uh, my partner said that word to me the other day, and I've seen it on things online and stuff. And, and I just looked at her and I went, I still don't really understand what that means. <laughs> so please don't turn me that way. She says, oh, <laughs> you're, you're talking in a woke way now. I said, okay, let's just let's just move on. I'm not that cool. <laughs> I can't engage in this level of conversation. <laughs> okay, so um, we are going to follow on with Adam's favorite phrase ever since we started oh. up, gather. He loves this phrase, elephant in the room. So every time we have a guest on, he said, what's one of the elephant in the room questions we can ask? So over to you, Adam.
1: Yeah, I think this one is not as much as an elephant in the room, but it seems like a bit more of a roadblock. And I think it may be a culture within the golf industry around startup. I think startup isn't a term that's used much. Um, you've started to see a lot more startups, I think, come to the fore during sort of 2020 in this sort of lockdown period people sort of going okay we've got some spare time i think one thing internally is gather we we're, we're looking at and is, is the growth and how do we grow gather uh, over the long term so it's really going to make an impact and provide the value to the members and one big elephant in the room is finance is money um it's an area that people sort of shy away from um In golf terms, because I think just culturally, especially in that private members environment, you can't say words like profit because you're not a not-for-profit organization. Um, In our terms, the big sort of question at the moment is how do you finance a startup to actually give yourself the best chance to succeed? And the thing I wanted to tap in with your background and Arcos, Andrew, was really around knowing you and knowing the journey that you've been on it's a massive go big or go home mentality. It's very much an American mentality by the sounds of it. And especially in the UK and Europe, from what I see, we sort of shy away from that. And I don't know exactly why that is. There's some assumptions that I'd have. Um, But really the question I wanted to ask was, do you feel that sort of go big or go home mentality is what's needed to really be a successful startup?
2: Yeah, I think there's probably, you know, two prongs to that answer, right? I think, Put the money aside for one thing, I think in the u k we're very afraid to fail at doing something you know so if you fail if you're worried about failing before you've even done something, you don't commit, you don't go all in and give it a hundred percent chance you know and if I'm honest, I look back in you know the four or five years I spent at j p Morgan banking, you know I was probably average, you know, and it was just coming up to the big media telco cr- crash, so I'd have probably been let go at some point, you know that's just the way banking is, so you know that's probably a fail on my c v And then the property business, you know, some developments were great and some failed. So, but I think if people go into the mindset of trying things out with what happens if I fail mentality, then inevitably they're not going to be hundred percent committed and they're going to just fall short. Whereas if you go in with that hundred percent, you know, I'm going to give this everything I've got and I'm hoping it's going to succeed and I'm going to do everything I can to make it succeed. Then at least you've given it your best. You know, what I always say to, to my kids is, you know, you don't want to look back in 20, 30, 40 years time and go, you know, if I'd only done that, if I'd given that a go or if I'd tried that. So I think there's this mentality about failure. And when you compare and contrast, say the U.S., where failure is almost celebrated, it's almost like it's a learning experience. It's OK, this person's failed at this, but what have they learned that is then going to allow them to be a success in their next venture? You know, so you get loads of serial entrepreneurs who fail, fail, fail. I mean, you can go through pretty much any of those famous serial entrepreneurs and have a look at them. You, know, you read about them all in the paper, and the newspapers and magazines and things, and you see how much money they've made. But at the end of the day, they've they've failed multiple times before they've got anywhere near to that stage. Um, and then you you're right. You mentioned the point about celebrating wealth. You know, it's almost frowned upon in this country to be successful. Yeah, if you see somebody, you know, we always want to knock them down, whether it's a footballer who's won something. You know, um, you know, look at all the Marcus Rashford stuff. You know, he's changed a little bit for kids' lives, and then all the grief he gets on social media. You know, the newspapers like to knock people down. If people are successful in business, they want to knock them down all the time. And I th- it's a strange mentality we have here, and it's you know, def- it definitely hinders people. Um, and it just maybe I think what we need to think about is you know, if people are successful, then. They've obviously done well financially. They have then generated more revenue to the, you know, to the government. They've hired people. They've given people jobs. I think we've got to take a look at it that way. And then you mentioned finance. You know, when we went out fundraising as a business, and we did it a few years ago with Arcos, and I've done it previously. And, you know, when I did the property venture is when you go out, we always ask for so little, you know, our ambition and aim is so small. It's like, you know, And I don't don't know what gathers long-term aims are, but it's, you know, let's say you want to grow from 300 to 400 people. Why not 400,000 people? You know, look at, think of these extensive goals. I'd rather fall short of 400,000 and hit 300,000 people than go, all right, I've managed to grow 100 this year. You know, for us as a business, you know, if you're setting yourself these glass ceilings, you're never going to break through them. So, and that's, then rolls into those pitches to those private equity firms and the venture capitalists, because they're not gonna to wanna to invest in low growth businesses. They're looking for 25, 30, 40% return on their equity when they, when they go into things, You know, even more. They're not looking at, okay, let me put this in because I like the guy and he might make a few pounds one day. You know, these venture capital funds, they want real returns and they're gonna gamble big on multiples, multiple firms, because they know probably 90% are gonna go bust. But that of that ten percent they 're going to have a few winners, and that's they just spread it around and I think if we went into pitches as businesses and were more aggressive and challenged the v c s and the private equity firms who are going to invest in us and show them a business plan that's aggressive and ambitious, then you know maybe we'll start throwing more money at us
1: and it's interesting because of our costs you obviously came into the market not as the first mover and um, there's a there 's obviously one um to my head, big established um, player in that market. And there's there's been, obviously, a number of other businesses go into it. But it seems like, obviously, as it stands, you're very much leading that market. So that sort of first mover advantage doesn't seem like it's that important. And we were talking the other day, and you gave some other examples. But um, do you think for people who are thinking of starting a business where there might be someone doing something in that space, um they should be a bit conservative and, and look at it, or should they just sort of go for it?
2: I think you've got to challenge every business model. Okay, look, look at look at the car or, or the automotive industry, right? Everybody thought petrol and diesel cars are the way forward, along comes, you know, Tesla and shakes it all up. Look at the takeaway service or restaurant business, Deliveroo come up, you look at the black cabs in London, along comes, you know, a competing service in Uber and challenges everything. You know, and fr- from an Arca's perspective though, you know, we had game golf in the marketplace. Um, and it was a direct consumer with wholesale model as well. Um, and we were very similar to that when I first joined Arcos, but we then pivoted pretty quickly because you realize if a business is going to make sense, sometimes you've got to pivot halfway through. And we moved away from um, trying to be a one-time sale to an end customer. And that's it because then you lose the customer, you know, whether you've got the email address or not, once you sold them something that they don't need to buy again, they're never going to come back to you. So we had to pivot to a subscription business model. So it's maybe lower entry to get in, but the lifetime value of that customer is more valuable to us. And that will ultimately be where the value is of the business and where it's held later on. I mean, you take examples such as, you know, whether Peloton, whoop, any, any subscription business, that's where the value is. Any business that is just a one-time sale, you've always got to fight to get that customer back every year. And that's the real struggle. Whereas, you know, the benefit of what we've got is software. So then you can iterate things, keep bringing out new things. And I think the one thing that we're very good at as a business is just challenging our assumptions and model regularly. I mean, every few months, we're always challenging it. And maybe that's, you know, I don't know the insides and outs of what Game Golf did, but I think maybe they just didn't pivot and didn't figure out how to, to crack the market.
0: Andrew, so coming back on that, I think it was the second of your points a moment ago. Let's just um, let's just see the generation that we are coming up behind me. So I'm forty now. Um, in the last five years, I've done a lot of, um, you know, listening to. Started probably started off with like listening to Tim Ferriss podcasts, which I really like. But then it led off onto all these different things because of how many guests, uh, diverse guests he had, and mm-hmm. all the different avenues you can learn about from those people. And th- there is now obviously with the. Everything being so connected online, there's many people, let's just say in their, their 20s and 30s sitting in the UK who might be looking and reading about on digesting all of that stuff and going like there's this on the, the glam of the entrepreneurial world but then there's there is a lot of really good sources of information out there. Now I believe in Adam and I've kind of met someone or spoken to some of them through gather. there's some of these people that are in the golf community right uh-huh. now they're working in the golf industry. But given that they're working in an industry where there's quite a lot of ceilings or or, uh, Mm roadblocks or barriers to them kind of being innovative in their thinking and actually pushing it and doing some of these things, what could be the first steps for them? You know, taking aside the sort of, you know, thinking about, oh, we've got to raise lots of investment money. Just say, what could be the first steps they could take if they're digesting all that stuff and they're really passionate about starting something?
2: Quit your job. First thing you do is quit your job because as soon as you've got no income or no salary coming in and you've got, you know, you've got that pressure. I wouldn't do this if you've got a family or anything, but if you're in your twenties and thirties, this is the time to take risks. So quit your job, give it a go. The worst thing that's happened is you're going to fail. And then you go get another job somewhere else. And you've got more experience of the entrepreneurial mindset. I think too many people just sit in the same chair. You know, life is not a, um, it's not a one industry job anymore. You know, you don't go into one industry and stay there for forever and ever and ever. You know, it's, and you might not even be the same company for for your whole career. You know, if people jump around. Skill sets are transferable. Um, I think too many people don't take enough risks, especially when you're twenties, thirties. You know, I'm in my forties now, but you know, I'm going to still take some risks and give things a go because I think that's the that's the joie de vivre, right? That kind of what gets you out of bed in the morning. So. Don't just sit so there and think you, about it. Get out
1: and do it. And Andrew, do you think there is an investment market for big thinking in golf? Um, do you think that sort of the wider uh, investment institutions and platforms uh, are interested? And in, uh, if you've got an idea, um, an incredible idea, you can raise funding. I think it's, it's difficult. So I'm
2: not going to kind of sit here and say, you know, the, It's a simple process. You've got to have a great idea. You've got to throw in some of your own equity. You've probably got to go and get a little family trust fund or something to help you out on day one or friends and family, which is always a dangerous one. Then you've got to prove your business model over a year or 18 months, two years to get to a certain stage because no one's going to invest without a track record. No one's going to invest unless you can show growth. No one's going to invest unless you can show, you know, patents or unique market entry conditions, or, you know, you've got a product that is going to offer significant barrier to entry Um, and they want those returns, right? If you're not getting 25% plus return on your equity, then, you know, forget it. So I think people just, you know, maybe this is where golf needs a little bit more education. It's just about what are investors looking for? What are the returns, you know, what are they willing to throw at? You know, golf has not been a exciting investment Place for for funds of late, right? I mean, you look at you know, Callaway's share price has taken a knock. Taylor, Taylor Made's always back and forth on the private equity table. You know, you know, Cobra's owned by Puma. So there's lots of companies. I mean, Ping's probably the most stable one, family-owned business for years and years and years. Um, so it's just figuring out is the business model viable. But then you've got to pitch it and sell it to people, and that's probably the hardest part. People think it's just oh, I'll go and see some people and they'll throw in a hundred grand or a couple hundred grand. Well it can take a year to go around knocking on doors. You've got to be persistent. I mean, Sal, who set up Arcos, I mean, he, um, he spent weeks and weeks and weeks camped out at Callaway's office, trying to get information from them um, about a previous sense of technology they had. You know, he didn't give up. You know, because of that, we're here where we are now. So, you know, people give up too easily. They don't try hard enough. And they expect it, it's this X factor generation not quite the woke generation, but it's that generation that you want returns right now. Well, it doesn't happen right now. It, you know, you might get lucky and you know win pop idol or whatever it's called, but you know, or win the lottery. But you're not going to get there in one, two, three years. These things like take ten years and the rest.
0: I guess where there's one uh-huh. like the opportunity um, is that as if anyone's twenty or thirty in the in the golf industry and they've played a bit of golf, then that's exactly the challenges that you come up against in terms of progressing with golf you don't suddenly become a scratch handicapper or very few people accelerate quickly to becoming a scratch handicapper so it's a, a constant it's a game of um failure isn't it if you're playing the competitions and it's a game of um sort of one one shot that keeps you coming back or whatever it isn't around so you would think actually that, that mentality has already been experienced by a lot of the people who work in the golf industry mm-hmm. just by them playing in the, uh, the game itself just a quick one sort of on the point you made there about especially some of the big hitting names you know some of the companies you mentioned there it seems a little bit sort of unusual or ironic in a way we look at the golf industry and there's a lot of very wealthy people that love golf a lot of very wealthy people around the world so why are why is it not appealing for them to be investing significantly in established brands in golf, like some of the ones that you mentioned there, because it surprises me to hear that some of these worldwide brands are not just in a really sound financial place at all times, because you would just think that there's wealthy people who want to keep that going.
2: It's just, you know, it's looking at return on investment, right? I mean, if, if you could buy, I don't know, let's take, let's take Titleist. If you could buy Titleist for argument's sake and make a 25% return on your investment, then people would do it. But, you know, if the revenues aren't there and, you know, we've had a declining trend in terms of golf participation over the past 10 years, you know, it's not an exciting business place, but, you know, these VCs and private equity funds, they're looking for these fast returns. You know, they're looking for these three, four, five year time horizons. They're not looking for something in growing industries that are you know, growing rapidly and golf has been this stagnant industry. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think we can see it growing at, you know, double digit growth over the next 10 years, I think that's going to be a struggle. Um, So we've got to look at innovative ways where we can attract that investment that you talk about. Um, But it's more of a passion project, I think for a lot of people.
1: And what's going to be interesting and it's a bit of an elephant in the room area. It's a bit of a sensitive one. I haven't seen it been sort of discussed or debated too much, but is that route to market shift? um I remember a conversation with you I don't know how many years ago maybe 3 4 years ago where um I think when you first took on the role the route to market was through that green grass approach through the pro shops and then very much just sort of cutting that out and going direct to consumer that's obviously a trend that we're seeing with a lot of the new brands or it's your vice golfs and uh, people like that how much is that going to be a game changer moving forwards and maybe just shift the paradigm um around the context of investment that we can actually access consumers a lot more directly. Um, and that might be a bit more exciting um, on the on the investment front.
2: Yeah, I think I think there's two things to think about there. One is if you're selling direct to a customer, you're making between a 30 and 40% bigger margin, right? Because you're not giving out to a distributor or wholesaler or retailer. Um, so if you can show that you can engage with your customer, you're gonna make a greater margin, but at the same time, if you've got that customer's email address and contact info because you're dealing direct with them, that's value. You know, if you've got a hundred thousand, 200,000 email addresses, you know, you know, roughly what you know. every company now ascribes a value to an email address where it would be $1, $5, $10, because they know how many of those customers will come back and repeat. So if you can control the end customer and go direct to them, and there's so many options now, I mean, all these fulfillment centers you've got all over the world, you don't have to own a warehouse to be able to ship stuff out. You can just put it in a local 3PL, which is exactly what Now look at Amazon, right? That's all they've done. They've just got these huge warehouses throughout the whole country and allowed a huge number of individuals, startup entrepreneurs to import stuff from China all over the world, put it in Amazon's warehouses and sell it. So there is still a market, I think, for retail. But you know, I look at where our sales are and they just keep growing and growing and growing direct to consumer yeah Amazon's always the elephant in the room, you know, but I think they're kind of like better the devil you know right you know there are you know I've, I even bought something on Amazon this morning right <laughs> Before I spoke to you yeah. guys it's just it's easy because they've got everything I want, and I think that's that's the thing it's easy if you can make it easy for the customer, then they're going to go and do it so if you can make it easy for them to buy a driver or a sleeve of golf balls and you know you're going to get it the same day or the next day, then why would you get in your car, drive down the road to a retailer and then and purchase it there? You know, Retailers won't be like me set for saying that, but they're almost going to have to reinvent the way they deal with things because the customer, especially with this whole lockdown stuff, is people are so much more used to buying on the internet. You know, people don't want to go out. They just buy on the net and get it delivered.
0: Yeah. Shifting back just a, a moment to the investor conversation, I'm curious, you know, if, if there's someone out there who has built up their, their value proposition, they have started to demonstrate that 12 to 18 months of, of business viability. And there's a lot of talk about, okay, we go out there, we get investors, because that's what everyone does. You know, that's the thing to try and accelerate you to the next level. But there's probably a few people, me included, who think Oof, when you get to that point, you know, you're asking, you're confident in your business and you're wanting to accelerate things, but oh, taking someone's money, like that must add like a whole level of pressure and stress to your life because how do you sleep at night kind of knowing we've got to make sure this works because they've really shelled out a lot of money and they put a lot of trust in us. But
2: Colin, that's, see, that's the problem. See, you're worried about spending other people's money. What you should be thinking about is how can I help make them more money? You know, they've taken a risk on me and they're not going to throw all their money in one because that would just be stupid and a decent investor would never do that. They're going to spread around probably because they know you're probably going to fail. Mm. But out of those 10, 20 businesses, so that mindset has got to be, they put the money in because they believe in me. They believe in the business plan. If I can't execute that, then they put their belief in the wrong business plan or person. Um, And if it fails, it fails. It's just investment cash at the end of the day. You know, it's their money that they wouldn't invest unless they're willing to lose it. So, because I think if you're, it's almost too much paralysis of kind of going, let me protect their capital and be very, by all means, you've got to be careful and you've got to make thoughtful decisions. And, but if you think about it, if they're going to invest significantly, they're going to have a decent equity share of the business. They're going to have a board seat. They're going to give strategic advice. You're going to give them updates on what's going on. So they're going to be very, very much involved in the day-to-day running of the business by giving you a general direction. So if it fails at that point and they put money in, well, that's it. Close the business, set up a new one.
1: Yeah, that leads, leads on to the next point, really, which I think as the listeners will hear is you have a, just a really strong, pragmatic approach. You don't really um, look into the emotions. Um, golf, I think, is, is especially in the business, is full of emotion. It's full of relationships. Um, it's full of structures. Um, you obviously came to golf a bit later on in, in life, Um I think what's really interesting just seeing how you approach business and you approach uh, the golf business um is really interesting because I compare it to a lot of people like myself probably Colin and others maybe listening who've gone through that that junior golf mentality um they've always been slightly institutionalized and there's a few times that I catch myself going why have I perceived that as a barrier or why have I perceived that's a structure that I can't interrogate um and speaking to you, you, you sort of don't see that and you speak very sort of straightforwardly, um, as I said, without that sort of emotional context to it. Is that something you sort of witness in golf? And also is it something that you consciously do throughout business or do you think there's something in it about growing up in the golf industry? There is there is a slight institutionalized way of thinking.
2: Yeah, I think I think the structures in golf are so deep rooted. I mean, it's hundreds of years old, right? I mean, you've got The RNA, you've got the PGA that's been there for 120 odd years or so. Things are kind of really well established. Um, So there's always going to be that, you know, why do we need to change? Because this is the way we've always done it. But I think that's moving away. I think that's something everybody tends to hide behind and say, um, there's definitely challenges in the industry of people just, but it's almost, if you think about it, they're all like all these golf clubs, like mini small businesses, like mini pyramids you've got one guy at the top, you've got a couple of guys below, and then you've got loads of f and and some pro, pro shop stuff. So there's limited room for people to grow. There's no kind of, if you look at any of the larger organizations, I don't know, take Tesco, McDonald's or whatever those, there's always rooms to grow and try things out, and do different things. And I think by having these lots of little small businesses, it's difficult for somebody who's starting out in the golf industry to get experience in different areas. You know, should they be in golf from the outset? Maybe they love golf. But maybe they should go and work at a Tesco and see what strategic thinking is. You know, why are they opening a store in a certain location? How do they calculate the demographics of that location? You know, to decide an open. Go for it. Work for a Starbucks and see how do you interact with the customers there. You know, what makes them open three stores on the same high street? What's the calculations they do? Because all those things are relevant to the golf industry. Um, so I think there's just that sort of inertia where people think, all right, I mean, we all love golf, right? Otherwise we wouldn't be here. But you don't have to stay in it the whole time to be able to get experience elsewhere to come back into it. I think there's real world examples of where people can go away for a bit, learn stuff, and then bring it back and apply it.
1: Absolutely, and one that's obviously one aspect. Another aspect is collaboration. I know that Arcos collaborated very closely with Microsoft. Um, mm-hmm. do you, how beneficial was that to the business? Um, and do you think that might be a step forwards to go? Obviously, one extreme to some degree is to go outside of the industry um, and see what else is out there. But just by collaborating, that's a really short-term, easy way where you can bring two worlds together and, and transfer those learnings. Yeah, I mean, the Microsoft relationship
2: was one that you know, was born out because Microsoft invests a lot in sports. You know, They're a big investor in um, the NBA, NFL. They've done loads in, in sports. And they're always looking to support smaller businesses and lend their – skills where this in this instance it was um, machine learning um, where we had some skills but they were you know, they've got software engineers who are you know some of the world's best that they hire so to borrow their software engineers for a week or two to during a hackathon to create what ended up turning into the RFS caddy was um, was pretty cool. So but that's not something we would have sat down and said to ourselves, let's go and speak to Microsoft about doing that. You know, it's not something that would be on a business plan. You know, it just happens. You know, you, you got to take advantage of situations. And that one came about, um, I think that was with Cobra and Bryson. They had a hackathon and Microsoft got involved with Bryson at the time. And we were invited along because we just started that relationship with Cobra. And they spent a week just hacking around this idea of what a cool caddy would be. And it all came about. So I think you've got to take advantage of situations when they turn up. Turn up. But you can't always plan things. So, you know, as we talked about a business plan that you put in front of an investor, it may have, this is my route from A to B and this is how I'm going to make you money. But along the way, there's tons of little iterations up and down and changes and segues and pivots. Um, And if you get the right investor, they'll support you along the way to do that.
0: Interesting. Um, One of the things that I was really impressed by, Andrew, was actually just your LinkedIn profile and the text that you had at the start for your profile introduction. Because very succinctly in two sentences, one of the the sentences you actually had said, I've got word for word here was, you selected the best in class teachings, experiences and operational procedures from all of your business environments. And the question that came to mind is, what would you say are the top learnings then that you have brought into your work in golf that you think have had the most impact? primarily thinking about learnings maybe that you believe people who work solely in golf would probably not learn otherwise. And you mentioned a couple of potential examples and kind of Starbucks example there, but for you personally, is there some obvious things that you think, I mean, I know it's a difficult thing to do because you're kind of reflecting and sometimes mm-hmm. it doesn't quite come to you for your own, uh, you know, someone else would probably notice it for you, but is there any obvious things where you go, yeah, I probably wouldn't have known that if I hadn't gone outside of golf or hadn't started outside of golf?
2: Well, First thing, I wouldn't trust everything you read on somebody's LinkedIn profile. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, if I always look back to banking and kind of what that instilled in me, I remember my first day, we spent three months on this training program down in uh, near Tower Bridge. And it was, you know, it was eight till six. It was nothing strange. Then my first day, I think we started on January the 3rd or 4th or something. Um, and I was in the office till 10 o'clock. And it carried on like that. I think just that hard work, team mentality, I think is something that you know bankers get a big a, a bad rap right because they think they just earn loads of money and they go and splash it everywhere and you know what you know, I probably did reasonably well during those four or five years but I think it's that hard work ethic. It's it takes time, it takes energy and I didn't hack it out. You know, I've still got loads of friends who are still in banking and they've hacked it out and they're all very successful and moved on to yeah, run private equity business, hedge funds, and all the rest of it. Um, but every single one of them looked at me when I left. And within a couple of years, they were all like, I wish I'd left and done something else that I'm super passionate about. So I think when you look at people's careers, I've always tried to follow what I'm really passionate about. And that that may change again, right? In four or five years' time, it might move away from golf, and hey, it might be ice hockey, I don't know. Maybe it's McDonald's and the, the latest big BK Mac or whatever it is. So... Um, I just say, follow your passion, but when it comes to hard work, you can't beat it. If you're going to work your ass off, then you've got a better chance of success than just somebody who will uh, twiddle their thumbs and just hope it comes to them. And that's back to that lovely word that you don't like calling the woke generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, you've got to pull your finger out. You've got to work hard. You know, I remember signing out of the European working directive. I think they only said you could do 35 or 40 hours a week we did 40 hours a week by Wednesday morning. So it was just, you know, hard work is probably the best one. And then take the risk. Go risk yourself. Give it a chance.
0: Okay. Very interesting. We've got a question from a member, Thomas Hefford, who you might know. Um, Hello, Thomas. He, yeah, he, he was asking, despite the optimism for changing the industry at the moment, what do you believe is the biggest cause of the resistance?
2: Hey, we talked about that a little bit earlier. I mean, we all talk about this clamor for change, but what change do we want? You know, I don't, you see so many people saying, and we've talked about this before, right? It's like, do you want loads of junior golfers? So you provide the ranks of people coming up over time. Do you want family golf clubs? Do you want private members, men only, women only golf clubs? You know, I think, I don't think there's a massive issue in terms of the change because that's what business and operating dynamics will do. You know, if a business isn't successful, whether it be a members club or a privately owned club or owned by a limited company, if it's not successful, it will go bust. So if they're not providing to their end customer, the golfer, what the golfer wants, they won't go there. They'll move away and go somewhere else. So what we do need is that general direction of where the industry goes. So similar to how government gives incentives and grants and things and you know, sets up, setting up free ports, for instance, in this country to help push that growth in a certain direction what we need from you know, England golf, the RNA, the PGA, is just, just general direction of this is where we wanna go and have a vision. And if it's to grow, you know, take those nomadic members, for instance, and turn them into full-time you know, handicap members or is it to grow the um, user base or the number of golfers in the country, whatever that is, there's not one way to get there. And you know, I mean, I know Thomas, I spoke to Thomas before Christmas, um, and we talked about changing the industry and things. And you know, you're right, too many people sit in the same chair and don't want to change. But sometimes you sit in the same chair and don't want to change because it's a successful business. So why change it? But then there are failing businesses where they'll be forced to change one way or another because they'll run out of money.
0: Mm. Okay. I've got one final question I was going to throw in, a bit random. What does the word innovation mean to you?
2: Mm anything that's not been done before properly.
0: Great. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we wrap up, final question would just be, is there anything in terms of a message that you might like like to give to the Gather community that are listening? Um, or is there anywhere you might want people to go and check out something about you or your company um, any sort of messages you'd like to leave?
2: I think if there's one thing, you know, that I've learned from other industries is don't be, don't be frightened to fail. I think that's, that's it. Yeah. Somebody can listen to this and go, you know what? I want to give that a go, go out and fail. You know, that's the worst that can happen. Then go just get another job after it. You know, I think that's, that's the big message for me that I've always tried to take. There's various things from my life that have caused that to happen. Um, So I think if you can just go out, give it a shot, don't be sitting there in 30 years time sitting in that same chair or grumbling about how the industry needs to change or, you know, people like to moan. You know, everybody likes to moan every now and then. Even I like to moan, but you can either moan or you can do something about it. So get off your butt and do it.
1: Amen.
0: Yeah. Well, this has felt for me like a combination of trying to host a podcast, sitting in a university lecture, learning about business, uh, being mentored and being a motivational speech all at the same time so first of all I really appreciate you taking the time to do that Andrew more importantly I hope that there's plenty of listeners out there who listen to this and really take some of these key lessons away and some of these insights that you've given so appreciate your absolute honesty and uh, Adam um, you get any final words that you want to say?
1: Yeah just a massive thank you to, to Andrew and I think there's a there's a there's hopefully some really good synergies now um, with I think what Gather are trying to do, with what our membership are saying, um, with what we're seeing in the wider uh golf business community and, and uh wider industry. So I think that I've wrote wrote a note of of how do you sort of stimulate, because I think we we're at a stage where the golf industry and individuals have ideas. There's still a lot of roadblocks, and I think that's just in in sort of paralysis by analysis, as you mentioned, Andrew. So if we can create some platforms to bring these people together, um, then fantastic. And I think anyone listening to this, if, if this has sparked an idea or has, has really made you pull your socks up, then um, definitely get in touch either or well, directly. Um, I'm sure you don't mind people reaching out to you, Andrew, but it would be good to take this conversation forwards now and really activate it. Yeah, one thing just before you go is maybe if there are people who want to pitch a
2: business idea, maybe get four or five gather members and get them to pitch it to them you know, pick holes in it, you know, tear their business plan apart and challenge it. You know, maybe just something to think about as you go forward and grow the, grow the community.
0: Fantastic idea. Yeah, I love that one. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. And Thanks, Jens.
2: Appreciate it. It's been brilliant.
0: Thanks for your time. All the best. Cheers.